The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really good to be with everyone tonight. Week six of our Buddhist studies class this fall on the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness of breathing, which really is one of the more, probably the most specific meditative map that the Buddha offered during his 45 years of teaching. And you can see we get into pretty subtle territory with this third tetrad now that we're exploring together. And you know, in the beginning when we're tracking just the breathing in and breathing out, it it really can feel like uh, a personal challenge, like not to take the off-ramps and think about whatever the mind is inclined to think about, but really stick with the meditation object. But by the time we get to the third tetrad, whenever we're practicing and you know, with that kind of a mind and that kind of territory of the mind, then it's really much less about a meditator meditating and more about trusting a natural process, like where the mind is keeping the, the space of the knowing mind, the space of the present moment, keeping that in mind. And as it keeps it in mind, anything extra is seen as extra and falls away. That shedding, that dropping away, it isn't like we're kind of shaking dirt off. Something like that. Oh, selfie. (laughs) So it's really about uh, learning how to rest or learning how to abide. Trusting something that's worthy of that kind of trust. And that, um, that experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, those first three steps instructions of the third set of four instructions, the third tetrad. You know, they're really the same instruction. We're just keeping the space, the nature of the heart, the nature of the mind, not the activity of the mind, nor the activity of the body, but the space here and now. This is what we call in Buddhism the mind. This is the mind, not the activity that, you know, our thoughts, that's, you know, the activity of my mind and the sights and sounds and sensations and the smells and tastes, that's the activity of my body. But all of that activity of body and mind, which we worked with in the first two tetrads, are happening here in the mind or being known here in the mind. And it's not our habit to attend to something subtle like that, but it can be, (laughs) because our mind is trainable. We can train the mind to be interested in something subtle, like the space of the mind. Not whether we're doing a good job at it or not, because that's activity of the mind. You know, any judgments, any evaluations, even remembering the instructions. 
So any thinking, any mental activity would be, if it's helpful, if it's skillful, would be in the service of keeping the space of the mind, appreciating, gladdening that. So this is like a a deeper pleasure. It's really the pleasure, a deeper taste of the pleasure of non-doing that. And all of the kind of egoic or wrong view constructs that are behind that self-centered doing. It's just the shedding of that already just to have, because we're already, we're coming from a place of mental quietude. Mind is pretty quiet. Mental activity is pretty chilled out. And then we're realizing, intuiting, oh yeah, this is the nature of the knowing mind, the space of the mind, the empty. Because what's really, when we talk about resting or abiding, really, to do that, it's like, it's really about the shedding. Like, we can't really rest if there's some doing going on. And it's really about the identification. Because we can intuit the space of the present moment, and we can keep that in mind, then attention doesn't have to go to activity, identifying with some activity. And when it doesn't attend, doesn't identify with activity, then that activity is seen as extra. And it's just this more subtle version of what happened in the second tetrad, where we relying on that pleasure of that ease, we could, wisdom could observe the activity of the mind without being identified with the pleasure that comes with some thought or the pain that comes with another perception. Or it just sees it as mental activity. And that allows it to basically not be fed. Uh, I, uh, in the email I sent to everybody today, I uh, added, uh, because uh, Venerable Analio had shared, I'm realizing the link to the book isn't working. I don't know what happened. It used to work, but I couldn't find it. But it was originally shared publicly, the PDF, and I have it. So I made a copy of the chapter on, chapter on um, this third tetrad, which is included in the email. And he, he has, I think, a useful simile. <clears throat> so step five, where the Buddha is asking us to train in remembering joy or recognizing joy as we breathe in and out, he uh, likens in the simile to a, a rushing stream. There's a lot of activity, but the, there's something very alive and free in how that river or that stream is just flowing and flowing and flowing unceasingly, in that sense that whatever the present moment is, it knows what it's doing, and it can just keep moving, it can keep buzzing the life of the body and the mind. I don't have to hold the whole thing together or make something happen. And then the shift, like we stand back from that joy and observe, and it's like the shift of that river coming into a big lake 
and it's still moving, but now it's it's like has a different texture as it comes in the river. Some of you have seen some of these racing rivers coming into Lake Superior, you know, and it's like 30 feet up, it's a torrent, and 30 feet into the lake, it's not much of anything. It's something, but it's not much of anything, and probably not much further out, it's hardly anything at all. You know, when whatever that torrent was really merges with the immensity of the lake, that's this uh, gladdening, this second step of the third tetrad. Experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, or it's really the pleasure of knowing the mind. So it's not different than knowing the mind, it's just like what comes with knowing the mind. There's a more profound pleasure that comes with it. And that knowing that pleasure helps us recognize how much it is empty, how much is not there, or how much is not the mind wisdom does it need to attend to. So the silence, the stillness, the space, and that it's empty of so much, empty of ill will, empty of doing, empty of selfing. And it's keeping all of that in mind that allows the nth degree of interference, of selfing, of of identifying with even the quiet stillness. When all of that is dropped, that's the fourth step, which is the releasing or the liberating of the mind. And uh, depending, you know, it might be for some meditators uh, dropping into jhana. And jhana, remember, is just a a state of absorption. I mean, generally it's characterized, jhana, um, as a mind that is free of even the more subtle aspects of the hindrances. So even subtle wanting or subtle not wanting or subtle dullness or subtle restlessness or subtle doubt, none of that. But another way way that jhana, the deeper absorptions, states of concentration are described are in terms of the five jhanic factors. So this is something you can just, the wisdom can just sense. It can be helpful actually when you're working at this level of the third tetrad to just get a sense of that how the mind, it's uh, ritaka, this application of the mind. It's like the mind is all in. It's really, um, it's not like uh, dissipated. It's just the opposite of a dissipated mind. And it's related to this word, usually gets translated as application of mind, and then richara, the second jhanic factor, is that sustained application of mind. So the mind's all in, and the mind continues to be all in. There's no wavering. And then that leads to a deeper level of this sukha, that's the gladdening there. Deeper level than what we experience at step six. Now we're at step 
seven, eight, nine, ten, right? And then that leads to ekagata. This is the fifth. Oh, I missed piti. Yeah, so joy and uh, sukha. Same words that were used for steps five and six then are really important ingredients for the deeper concentration. So we have vitaka, vichara, piti, joy, sukha, that ease of the heart, that pleasure of the heart, kagata, which is unification. So there's nothing left in the space of the mind to fragment it or divide it, which could only be some subtle element of a doer doing something. All that's been abandoned, and so the mind experiences the mind free of that fragmentation. So we call it unification. And that's a temporary liberation of the mind. We can get it more easily in a, in a, a good metta session, whether you're walking, right? it doesn't have to be in sitting, but when you have boundless love, that mind is also temporary, temporarily liberated from selfing and negativity. Now this ha- this comes with a lot more mental stillness. It's more profound, but it's still temporary. It's like there are still latent tendencies to take things personally and to want to get revenge and. <laughs> But it's a very powerful experience to have. And even anywhere, anything rather in that direction is very useful, right? Any movement toward a mind with less as opposed to more, you know, less um, self-centered activity, let's call it. And the key is like this, recognizing the space not the activity, right? That's that first step there, step nine, right? It's like taking the attention once and for all away from the activity of the body and the mind, and we're just keeping the space. Like, you know, it would be a little fun exercise, like for 30 seconds or whatever, can we just intuit the space of the room? without getting fixed on what's happening here. And what makes it hard is it's subtle and it's not our habit. But it can be, which is why we have the training. And remember, even if you feel like, God, you know, I just can't even connect with my breath, forget the third tetrad, they're kind of like... uh, I think I mentioned maybe last week even, you know, think of it as a curriculum. And yeah, it really helps to be really competent at the first tetrad. It's very supportive to learning how to be really competent at the second tetrad. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't practice all three or all four, because we'll move on to the four in another week. Because there are things that we'll learn that will actually help us and the uh, earlier tetraps. Like really having confidence in uh, that the mind isn't defined by its self-centered 
tendencies really helps us when we're having a, a big judgment fit because we can't sustain attention with the breath because I want to worry about this or think about that. Because then we, when we catch that self-centered activity getting in the way of tracking the breath, we, ha- we just have more confidence that that's not me. It's a hindrance. It's a defilement. It's whatever it is. It's just that. It's just that habit manifesting like this. And so it makes it much easier to persist and to begin again and have a, a more kind but uh, fearless relationship to these distractions that keep showing up for us. Oh yeah, that's just that. I wanted to share this. I don't think I did last week. I meant to, but uh, this passage from Ajahn Sumedho's book, Anapanasati. Stop me, some wave if I did read this. But this is the chapter on Anapanasati in that booklet. Um, it's Now is the Knowing is the name of the book. The more we take the easy way, the path of least resistance the more we just follow our desires, the more the mind becomes sloppy, heedless, and confused. It's easy to think, easier to sit and think all the time than not to think. It is a habit we've acquired. Even the thought, I should not think, is just another thought. To avoid thought, we have to be mindful of it. To put forth effort by watching and listening, by being attentive to the flow of our minds. See, this is really step seven, observing the flow of the minds. We talked about that last week, right? Where it's like one trains oneself, breathing in, experiencing mental formations, I think is how Gil uh, Franzfeld um, translates it. Yeah, experiencing mental formations. A lot of people say it has mostly to do with the feeling tone. Because that's really the triggering element in terms of mental activity. And remember the feeling tone, the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality of any experience, mental or physical. We might think of that as being visceral, the feeling tone, like the unpleasantness of a memory. Because it, it does seem to have a visceral, of, uh, embodied quality to it. But it's really a mental event, a mental happening the feeling tone. So when we're observing the mind, observing the activity of the mind, I should say, what's really relevant is the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality of that flow. And and then not needing to be confused by the flavor, the uh, affective flavor of mental activity. And it's a real shift, you know, that ability, as Ajahn Sumedho says here, to avoid thought, we have to be mindful of it, to put forth effort by watching and listening, by being attentive to the flow of our minds. Rather than thinking about our mind, we watch it. Rather than just getting caught in thoughts, we keep recognizing them. Thought is a movement, right? And that's that's the key, is to observe thought as a phenomenon, as a flow, as a process. Not me thinking a thought. 
So it's a real shift in view. And it's that to whatever degree we could rest in that pleasure of the mind, that ease of the heart, that really gives the heart the fortitude, like part of that I mentioned in the guided sit, part of the experience of that sukha, this is the initial level of sukha, step six, then we get a more profound dose of it with step, uh, I guess it would be ten. Um, but it has that sense of viscerally being held, like, I don't want to go anywhere. don't want to move. don't need to become anyone. It really has that sense of being held. And then from that place, then thoughts can be observed. Like, it's not me thinking in order to get something or get away from something, to plan something, to become somebody. It's just the force of habit. So we really have this wonderful capacity to have a different relationship to mental activity. But remember, everything is cause and effect. What is the supportive cause to be able to have that new relationship with mental activity? It's feeling really good. Feeling really good. And the safety and the settledness that comes from that. And in that sense, you know, there really is a kind of a building or a cumulative building of competence, spiritual competence with these 16 steps. Thought is a movement. It is energy. It comes and goes. It is not a permanent condition of the mind. Without evaluating or analyzing, when we simply recognize thought as thought, it begins to slow down and stop. That's step eight. This isn't annihilation. This is allowing things to cease. It is compassion. As the habitual obsessive thinking begins to fade, great space we never knew were there, great spaces we never knew were there begin to appear. So that's that transition from step eight to step nine, where we really sense the space of the mind. We gladden it. We really attune to the pleasure of aligning, of abiding with the space and sense the stillness, the emptiness of it, the, the profound stillness of it. We're to keep that in mind. And the more we attune to that stillness, the more any claim, any self-centered ownership, All of it is just seen as extra. So that shedding is really a natural thing. It isn't the result of somebody making a skillful dharma move there to kind of initiate a deep state of meditative absorption, which is always what we think. You know, it's like, just need to know, I need the right key to unlock it, this deep state of meditation. And then I'll have that attainment. It will be mine, that deep state of meditation. And now, once I have that key. But it's really, all of it is just a lawful process. So when in doubt, 
train yourself to relate to the instructions in that way. It's a map mapping a lawful process, an impersonal lawful process. So the liberation of the mind is something that just happens. So I thought with the small groups tonight, we could really focus on these, on the lawfulness. So let me just review, like when we're tracking the breath with steps one and two, right? The instruction is to track the breathing in and the breathing out, just the physicality, the natural bodily process of breathing in and breathing out. But but tracking it with enough uh, discernment, enough stability of present moment awareness to discern if it's a grosser or more refined breath. And so when we track a gross breathing process with enough persistence, enough patience, enough kindness, then it will become a more refined breath. And we can build our own confidence in that cause and effect. The breath becomes refined not because we want it to become refined. It becomes refined because the mind is tracking the breath without forcing anything, without being aversive or controlling. And that leads to the refinement because seclusion, it's like it's the law. (laughs) When the mind drops its other habits, like of being controlling, for example, then things settle down. And that we directly, immediately experience. Oh yeah, this is the law. This is how it is. That's wisdom discerning cause and effect. And the same thing, like when we practice that inclusive, step number three, inclusive awareness, then the Buddha is saying, it's the law, that when you're with the body in this inclusive way, not staring at the places that hurt in your body, but just taking it all in, you all belong, everything, it all belongs, yes, 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 then there's a healing will happen in the natural expression or effective feeling of that healing is bodily calm, bodily well-being. And it will spread and deepen, widen. It will feel good in the body. Even when, you know, we're mostly sitting with pain, when that's developed wisely, we're free from bodily pain. We're removed from bodily pain. doesn't mean that whatever tendon is out of place in the knee or whatever inflamed tendon we might have, doesn't, it's not like the inflammation has gone away, but the mind is really attuned to its relationship with the body, which is beautiful. So the experience we're experiencing is the beauty, the wholesomeness of the mind that's knowing the body, not the inflamed tendon or the, you know, whatever it might be, the headache that might may or may not be there. And of course, that healing of the mind knowing the body can have real effects physically in the body if the tension, the inflammation, or whatever is somehow being caused or perpetuated by some mental state. When that mental state goes away, then the physical tension might, some physical tension really does go away. And other more chronic issues don't. 
And then, same thing, then we bring joy to mind, we establish joy, and then when we step back from joy, so we're not dependent on the joy, not immersed in the joy, just knowing there is joy, being known, then it it just uh, creates this cause for a healing in our heart, a contentment, like, oh yeah, I don't have to go anywhere. It's a real dropping of a chunk of that chronic, incessant thinking there's somebody who's got to do something. And that's what eases. That sukha, that pleasure of the heart, is a dropping of a sense of me needing to do, me needing to become. It's a, you know, who we are just in that kind of personality sense is really characterized by our identification with craving. We're so confidently identified with craving. And in that experience of ease, that's that's taking a real hit, the identification with craving. I think I'll just rest in this ease. We're not even at the place where like I'm uprooting the habit of craving. It's just like right now I'm feeling really good. I'm just going to rest here. And we watch the thoughts. That leads cause and effect to quietude. We observe the space. We observe the pleasure of the space, empty space, the stillness. That leads to a natural shedding. The effect is the natural shedding of any selfing, anything extra in the mind. So the releasing or liberating of the mind. And same cause and effect with the fourth tetrad that we'll get to. We'll come back to this next week. But in the small groups, you could just talk about cause and effect. Anywhere you notice cause and effect, you applied yourself as best you could with the instructions. You did your best to follow instructions. What natural effect? It's like little mini testimonials to your small group. Oh, there is cause and effect. It's a law, you know, meditation follows a lawful, dependable truth. We can bank on it. If we follow, if the mind follows the instructions a little bit, we get a little results. If we follow it a lot, we get a lot of results. If the mind is completely all in, then we, we really master that cause and effect. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.